He played Karakan. His rating was higher. But from move seventeen, the king's side was mine. Took my chances fast. My rook was a knife, and my almighty queen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ladies' Night, the official podcast of U.S. Chess Women. I'm your host, Jennifer Chahadi, and you are listening to the artist Huga of HugaMusica.com. And that is a song that certainly captured my heart. Oh, Capablanca. His bishop was small. Thanks to everyone who supports the podcast for your shares and reviews and Apple Live. If you want to get more involved in all we do at US Chess to empower girls and women through chess, please consider a tax-deductible donation of any size to our US Chess Women program and reach out to me with any questions. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Ladies' Night. Today, I am here with FIDE master Alyssa Malahina, an author, practicing lawyer, and many-time participant in the U.S. Women's Championship, where she finished as high as third place in 2009. She was also the first woman to win the Pennsylvania State Championship and has earned a gold medal for the World Team Championship. Alyssa graduated from Penn Law at the age of 22, all the while maintaining her competitive chess career. She appeared on and wrote the cover story, Career Crossroads, for Chess Life magazine in April 2015. Since then, she authored Reality Check, which is subtitled, What the Ancient Game of Chess Can Teach You About Success in Modern Competitive Settings. Alyssa is a good friend of mine. She's also a Philadelphia native, so I'm here with her live in studio in Philly. It's great to have you on the show, Alyssa. Thank you so much, Jen. I'm so happy to be here. And as you mentioned, I'm a Philly native, so I'm visiting home for the holidays and so great to see you. Yeah, it's really exciting that you do all of these things that all somehow connect to chess in the end. I really find that I've also in my career tried to mix things with chess. So it's really exciting to see. And one of the projects that you're most recently involved in is the Corporate Chess League, which finished its second season in November of 2019. You just wrote a CLO article about it. Can you tell us about how this came about? Oh, sure thing. And uh, as you mentioned, it seems like all roads do lead to chess, or maybe it's that chess is the beginning and that all roads branch out from that. Chess was a big part of my life growing up, and I found a lot of overlap even in my career as a lawyer and my endeavors outside of chess. Uh, But still, there was no um, direct overlap between law and chess until the corporate chess league. So the idea came out of uh, just brainstorming um, with friends, with uh, one of my good friends, WIM Yonling Yon. And then later on, we brought in our co-organizer, Alexandra Wiener, who's the captain at Goldman Sachs. And we, were eat- we found ourselves at uh, big corporations, banks, and institutions in New York City. And we all had fellow chess players at each of our companies. And we were just talking about, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could get a team and just play some casual games together? And then we took that further and we talked about it more seriously. Uh, and that's basically how the Corporate Chess League was born as an idea. After that, there was a lot of logistics and planning that had to go into getting all of the teams together, not just our teams, but also um, reaching out to friends at other companies in the city, having the lineup. Uh, but then also having the space and figuring out how to oversee the format, the standings, uh, keep that going. Uh, And it just all fell into place. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like it was tremendously successful. You had teams from Google, Bank of America. And one thing that um, seemed very successful about it was how you brought all these people together who maybe hadn't played competitive chess in a little while. Um, A very common complaint we get from adult chess players is that when they play in weekend tournaments, they're always playing against kids. And while that might be fun and interesting because kids are getting better so quickly, there's the issue of potentially leaking rating. But then also, I think it doesn't really have a lot of networking potential if you're not, you know, communicating with other career people, right? 
Exactly. There are a lot of obstacles to playing chess when you're an adult or if you were more competitive when you were younger and you still want to keep up with it. There aren't necessarily outlets for that. I'd say one of the biggest impediments is just the time commitment that chess requires. Uh, the time controls are very long. And if you're playing in a serious tournament, it could take days, weeks. So if you're working professional and you have a limited amount of vacation days, you know, it's very difficult to allot the time just for a chess tournament, especially if you have to travel for it. So that was a big draw for our competitors in the, in the corporate chess league for exactly the reasons that you mentioned. We do it on a biweekly schedule on Thursday evening. So the idea is that once you finish with work, you can come down to uh, my law firm's offices. Uh, Debevoise and Plimpton hosted the last two chess seasons. They're located in Midtown Manhattan. So a very easily accessible. And um, if you could just make it uh, on Thursday nights and have that in your calendar going forward, um, you know, most people were able to make it. And we also had to figure out what to do with the time control because we want to keep the game serious, uh, but of course, we don't want the, it to take too long because that would deter a lot of the players and they won't be able to play a five or six hour game each night. Uh, so we came up with the time control of game and 10 and each side alternates playing once with white and once with black on the same board. And because you're playing two games, uh, I feel like that adds the competitive aspect to it, but it's still... Um, just just quick enough to be fun and friendly, but also, you know, longer than Bullet or, or Blitz for it to be taken seriously. Yeah, and people can even kind of memorize or remember their games at that time control. Um, I think it's brilliant. And it's interesting because St. Louis has recently started a corporate chess league too. And I think they have a very similar time control. And even the pro chess league, which obviously is a serious competition, but there's also that element of fun and having to fit it in into busy schedules. They also have this kind of like quick rapid games or long blitz games, depending on how you want to look at it. So it seems like there's a bit of a convergence that when you want to have a semi-serious competition involving adults who are really busy, you got the sweet spot of 10 to 15 minutes with a delay or an increment. Right. That, that's how it worked out. And we can talk about trends in chess in general, but I do feel like it's just going towards shorter time controls and people having less time just for chess and wanting that instant gratification and all the other benefits. Uh, it, it might be that over time, the, the time controls will shorten. I, I feel like they already have, even from open tournaments back when I was you know, playing actively on the tournament circuit, but it was always two hours. Uh, and then one hour after the sudden death. Uh, and now, you know, a lot of tournaments, it's just 90 minutes for the whole game. Even with the 30 second increment, I feel like the, the time controls are getting shorter. To my eyes, it's mostly a positive trend. But one thing that I don't want to miss out on with the Corporate Chess League is that the games are shorter and they're also competitive. So that's great. But there's also this aspect of networking and socializing, which is one of the reasons that so many people get into chess when they're kids, because they love the game, but they also love having fun with their friends. I know that that brought me into chess. I'm not going to lie. Um, it really hooked me to chess, the ability to make friends from all over the world and play games with them. So you're kind of bringing that back in the adult age, which I think is really great. That's so true. And, you know, I didn't think about it that way that I started playing chess for the networking. But, you know, a lot of my friends are from chess and I uh, developed a strong relationship with my dad from chess, who always traveled with me to tournaments. I met, met my boyfriend of 10 years playing chess. So obviously, I had that big social network. And then once you transition into the adult landscape, um, you, you don't necessarily need the social friends as much, but you need more of a career network and a professional network. And we're already seeing that develop out of the corporate chess league. You know, there's uh, players from different banks, corporations, tech companies, uh, we're a law firm. Uh, so there's definitely a lot of synergies, a lot of crossovers uh, going on. And it, it's all thanks to chess. It's remarkable to see. So you mean, can you give me an example where there's somebody who basically got hired for a new job or something like that because of the corporate chess league? You know, I feel like that would be the the dream, you know, if the corporate chess league takes off to the point that it would actually be a recruiting tool. So I don't know if there's a direct correlation to that extent yet, but uh, I know that people within firms have been meeting because of chess. So a lot of my teammates, uh, even on the Debevoise chess team, are not necessarily associates that I work with. Um, you know, our board, too, is a tax associate, and then we have a corporate finance associate. So people I wouldn't have met just in my basic line of work. 
And these are just great connections and friendships to develop. And I know at other companies too, especially banks that are much larger and they're drawing people from all different areas of the bank and coming together. And, you know, when, once that happens, uh, other opportunities come along, maybe not necessarily quantifiable at this point, but, but they do happen. And if it gets in the, in the hands of the right people and the right decision makers, and that's really where we want to take it to bring this to the attention of the more senior people and the more decision makers, uh, then yes, if you happen to be in an interview with them and mention you're playing chess and it resonates with them that, oh, yes, we have a corporate chess league and then our team did really well and you would be a great addition. Uh, even if it's subconscious at that level, I can definitely see those connections happening. Yeah, I think so. I mean, also sometimes you, things are kind of under the radar, so you don't know exactly what leads to somebody getting into a college or getting a job, but it has a lot of power beyond what you see on the surface. Can you tell me who you, who might be like a, an example of like a corporate chess hero, like somebody who was a great chess player and then just succeeded massively in the corporate world who you feel like is the embodiment of what things like the corporate chess league stand for? So that's a good question, but I feel like it happens the other way around where someone first starts out as being a good chess player and then they make it into the corporate world just because to make it uh, big in chess, it requires so much dedication early on. And a lot of the players in the league are childhood friends of mine that I grew up competing with and against. And it just so happened that we found ourselves you know, at various corporations in the same city. And so we were able to leverage that and come together again. Uh, but I feel like it doesn't happen as often that you see a corporate giant then pivoting to chess. Although with things like the Corporate Chess League, you know, people who necessarily wouldn't support chess or be interested in chess are, are now paying attention to it. And so I think that's happening, but they're probably not going to get to the same level in chess. Um, so you might have to look at it the other way around. But we have amazing players in the league. I'm always impressed with Rusa Golatiani, who won the second consecutive season MVP. She had a massive score. I think she got 11 points last year and 10 and a half this year. I don't think she lost a single game. And she's a mother and she's, you know, playing all of the games at a, at a high level and succeeding in her job. Oh, yeah. She's just a total beast. I mean, she's a mom of three. And, you know, when she plays chess, she's just such an incredible fighter. I mean, of course, she doesn't play on the classical circuit as much as she used to because she's so busy. But yeah, same here. She is really um, an incredibly um, gifted person, it seems, in terms of her like uh, life skills as well. That makes it able for her to succeed at a high level, even with big breaks. Um, you also this year came in the MVP for your board, which was board one. So the women did really well this year, not only in being the founders of the league, but also on the board itself. Yes, thank you. And I'm very proud with the, having a league founded by female players with uh, the inclusion that we have and all of the female stars that we have in the organizer capacity and the team captain capacity. Around 50% of the team captains are women. And the top performers are, are also women. And if you just looked at our league from the outside, I don't even think you would notice that there's a disparity, you know, deeper in the chess world or even in the corporate world where there is also very similarly male dominated field because there's so much representation. Why is that? Uh, so I have some theories about how, you know, women who succeed in chess and they are more practically minded. So they end up going into more of the, the corporate spheres and they realize that they can only do so much with chess. So they might take their talents elsewhere. And just a, a lot of us just happen to end up in the iBanking or finance or law worlds. And maybe women chess players also are good at, you know, if you mentioned practical, realizing the um, other benefits of chess, like the you know ability to perhaps ascend the corporate ladder a little bit more quickly, just because you might have a connection that somebody else might not have who never played chess. That's a good point too. I do think that the skills that you have from chess could also help you ascend the the corporate ladder more, give you more confidence, uh, just more vision in terms of planning ahead and seeing what the next step is. So I definitely think that the women who tend to succeed in chess could also take those skills and, and succeed in corporate. And, you know, here we all are. You touched on a lot of these issues in your book, Reality Check. Um, and actually, Dan Lucas, who does a pod, two podcasts for U.S. chess as well, including one called One Move at a Time, he interviewed a man, Jim Egerton, who's also an author, 
And Jim does corporate chess workshops and uses a game of chess to show lessons that you can use in business. And one that he mentioned is managing um, a chess game is like managing people. Um, What do you think is the most easily accessible chess lesson for corporate America? So something that you can take from chess and you can say, this is an important business lesson. Sure. Uh, And I I should say that I do think this um, teaching corporate and chess and intertwining those lessons, I do think that's an untapped market. I do think there's a lot of potential in terms of introducing chess to the corporate world and using chess as a tool to teach business lessons. So we don't necessarily do that with the corporate chess league, but um, we did have some presentations and, and workshops and we do cover those themes, but maybe that's something that we could integrate more if we get more interest from outside just the immediate chess players. Uh, but in terms of what you can teach business from chess, uh, I'd say the the biggest lesson, and this might be a bit surprising, is um, to actually just uh, stay calm uh, during periods of high stress. So as a chess player, you know, if you're playing the position and there's an unexpected move that happens or you're out of opening theory, you just have to keep equanimous at all times and take data in and, you know, just keep going and keep calculating, keep planning, keep strategizing. At work, I feel like there might be some uh, unexpected things that happen and there's a lot of stress and a lot of pressure and expectations and meeting deadlines and uh, I find myself very calm even though during those high stressful periods. And I do tie that back to chess. Staying calm. Yeah, that's a really good one because obviously in chess and in life, there are so many cases where you make mistakes or just bad, unlucky things happen. And being able to just be present and not, you know, fixated on the, the past is pretty tough skill to master. But it is pretty essential because there's a lot of decisions that happen in those critical moments and you have to keep a clear head. Absolutely. Um, I mentioned corporate chess heroes. I can't help but think of some people like Grandmaster Patrick Wolf or Grandmaster Pascal Charbonneau. Pascal is a friend of the league, so he came by uh, last year. I don't think he's in New York anymore, but it was great having him. And I know that a lot of us uh, had grown up uh, looking up to Pascal because he was one of the the first players uh, that made that pivot and made uh, his successful mark in the hedge fund space and the finance space. Yeah. And he also uh, did say that chess really helped him and not as he didn't talk as much about um, when I talked to him about this. It's like just getting noticed because of his incredible chess accomplishments is really important for him. Right. I remember there was a popular article written about um if you play chess, a hedge fund might want to hire you. I don't remember if it was for the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, but I remember reading that article and a lot of my friends had read the article and uh, we were inspired based on that article and stories like Pascal to start something like the league. And I know that um, different companies like SIG, Susquehanna International Group here in Philadelphia is actually a sponsor of the Pan American Championship. So there does really seem like there's a lot of um, potential interplay there. And it's a great reason for people to keep their kids in chess throughout high school, because, you know, if it can help you get noticed and not only high school, but also college, right? Yeah, absolutely. In college, in law school. And yeah, I will say that during my interviews with law firms, every single interview chess came up and law firm interviews are a bit different than banking or finance interviews, but still it was definitely a a talking point throughout. Did you get... Um, good results for most of the interviews? Well, to get the interviews, you still need the good grades because the transcript and the GPA is the Mm -hmm. cutoff. But once you get your foot through the door, then I do think that chess could be uh, the thing that puts you over the top. Yeah, it makes you stand out, especially as a woman, because it's, of course, rarer for women to be um, great chess players. So one thing I noticed about corporate world and chess that you actually mentioned in the introduction to reality check is that they're both hierarchical. So you have these like titles that are sometimes confusing to laymen. So grandmaster, international master, national master. It's really confusing to people who don't play chess. And you mentioned that the same thing is true in the corporate world. And can you tell me like, what are the equivalents in the corporate world to these different titles that might be confusing? Oh, sure. Absolutely. And to make it even more confusing, even within the corporate world, there are different titles between industries. So at law firms, you have um, partners and associates and analysts when it comes to attorneys, uh, and that might be its own hierarchy. And then at banks, you you also have partners or principals, and then you have 
uh, managing directors, and then you have VPs, uh, and you have associates and analysts there too. But it's also different based on the bank. So uh, I do think that people sometimes forget uh, and they fixate on the title too much. But when they when they leave uh, that little bubble, then they can't distinguish between you know, maybe like a, what a VP or a director or managing director just all sounds the same no, to I most people. Which, I don't know which one's better. Which one's better, a VP or a managing director? So see, I'm not even sure because that's, that's outside of my field, but I do think the managing director is the, is the higher one. But to me, VP sounds more impressive because vice president sounds like, oh, you're just under the president. But I know it's, that's not how it works. It's funny how now that you mention it, it seems like every industry has a lot of, not every industry, but a lot of industries have these like weird titles systems that is confusing. And maybe it's partly like intentional in some way because it like, creates this like subculture where we know the roles, but you do have to like be in that culture for a little while to figure it out. Like I also think about film because my husband is in film and I'm obviously involved in a lot of film projects as well. And there's producer, executive producer, co-producer, director. And sometimes it's really confusing, like which one is the most important. And then there's also like produced by as opposed to producer, (laughs) like... Which one's the best? Credits come, it's, you know, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. But that's also why I like chess is because at the end of the day, it's, you know, you can just play it out over the board. And even regardless of your chess title, the the moves speak for themselves. And that's another reason why I think that uh, there's a there's a lot of interest in in the league as well is because it doesn't matter if you're a senior executive or an analyst or an associate, you know, everyone just comes together and plays. That's the thing. I mean, it's, very human to create hierarchies. So I don't want to knock them because they're so obviously important to creating goals and then celebrating those goals. But I do think there's also something that we can go too far with it in chess and, you know, forget that it's amazing for everybody to be involved in the same game. So you've got this corporate chess league where the chess players are actually from all different parts of their companies. Exactly. We have um, everything from software engineers and we get senior executives and we get VPs and associates and analysts and traders and yet people on the tech side that are even outside of the traditional hierarchy. So that exactly it, it draws from pe- people from all over. It's definitely a great a great initiative and you wrote an article for CLO where you showed one of your games which was really cool. It was a French where you played this um, sacrificial line, which is part of the, what is that one called again? It's the Milner barrier, right. but it's it's a bit different. So in Milner barrier, you go knight c3 in that line. So in my line, you go knight bd2 before you go knight c3. But it's yeah. in that family. Right, right. And that was, a, that was a great game. You must have felt really good after playing that, especially since you're also organizing league. So it's kind of distracting, right? Yeah, every every match, there's a lot that's going on for me in terms of organizing. And a lot of things are, you know, coming in through even just setting up the room and working internally with the Debevoy staff who have been you know, tremendous throughout the league. Uh, even so, a lot of it goes through me and then the outward facing aspect. Uh, and then playing the games as well uh, and trying to keep keep that up for the team. And usually my games are the last ones to finish. And I don't know why, but even you know, when I was playing in the slower time controls, I'd have these games that would go on forever and ever. So I was very happy to play that game in the French because that one ended in under 25 moves, I believe. So I could enjoy. And I never eat before the game. It's just something that I've inherited even from my childhood. I would just you know, not eat before the game and I would focus on the game. And only after the game was over, I could relax. So here, especially because there's a lot going on before the start of the matches and then playing the matches. Once I'm finished, then I can finally enjoy the nice catering spread that's out for everyone. So in reality check, you talk about how it's difficult to maybe even impossible to succeed in multiple fields to the highest level that if you these days in this era of specialization, if you want to be the very best, you usually have to hyper focus. Um, But at the same time, you seem to be um, very successful in multiple fields. Um, Have you changed your opinion on that? Or is it more just that your point is highly specific? Yeah, this also goes back to how you define success, which I also talk about in in my book as well. And I, I do appreciate those words. And I would characterize myself as successful in various aspects, but also at the same time, I'm cognizant that, you know, I'm not at 
at the very top uh, in any of my fields. And so someone from higher up in one of my fields could look at me and, you know, deem me not as successful. So that's one aspect that you have to grapple with and think about where you're drawing the line and what success means to others, what success means to you and how much you rely on others' definitions of success to define it for yourself. Um, So I I would say that my view on that has not... uh, changed so much. So I still abide by that. But I also still abide by um, the fact that you can be content, no matter what, and that uh, uh, towards the end of my book, and not that this is a spoiler, I have a specific section on um, the mindset against goal setting. Because uh, especially as chess players, we're just trained to constantly go after goals, you know, whether it's the next rating jump, or whether it's the next title, or the next championship, and there's always more and more and more. And very similar in corporate structures, and this is also where the hierarchies come in, there's always another title that you can get or another success or another case or another big client, or there's always more and more to chase. And at some point, you just have to evaluate uh, at what point will I be content? Will it be at the very end? And if so, you know, what's the cost? And will it truly make me happy? Or can I be content uh, with where I am? I mean, I agree that there are different ways of measuring success. Exactly. To really, you know, if we want to use the word succeed or to get to the very, very top of the chess ladder, you have to devote a lot of time to chess. And I want to be clear, I have a lot of respect for professional chess players and a, a lot of my conversations with people outside of chess is explaining to them what it takes to study in chess and what the training regimen looks like. Uh, So it really does take a lot. And it's like a full time job to, uh, to get to the top of the chess ladder. And likewise, in, in other fields, you really have to be fully devoted to it. So unfortunately, that doesn't leave Um, a lot of time for succeeding in the same way in with your other passions. Right. Well, in chess, first of all, there are maybe some notable exceptions like Magnus Carlsen, who seems to have carved such a diverse life. Although, of course, there could be more to that than meets the eye. Like, I think that... Well, you're an exception too, Jen. Well, (laughs) Poker, chess queen. Here's the thing. Like, chess, I think more than anything, requires a lot of devotion, but then you can't, you can't also just like play chess all the time because your brain will fry. And I think you see that with somebody like Magnus, but also his brain is very special. A lot of the other top players, I do think that they spend like the majority of their time on chess. So it's like, it's hard to tell because unless you're part of that, like train training team, you don't really know how people are splitting up their hours. But here's one thing I'll say that I've observed in other worlds, whether it's art or poker or business, it seems like most of those worlds also privilege some other types of skills like networking. So you could say like in poker, it's actually really important to network because you can get into like good games or you could like make friends with people that you can like discuss strategy with and find out about like other people's strategies. I think that that's not as true for chess. And we might get like a distorted idea of how like maniacal you have to be. It's just interesting to me that the benefit of networking in chess is more so that you could have a diverse life and like, you know, maybe hop to other fields, whereas it doesn't necessarily help you in chess that much, does it? It is important to have a strong network in in any field and including chess, just being on good terms with even tournament organizers and just being on their radar to get invited to good tournaments. And that'll lead to other good opportunities or Uh, Just being on good terms with other players so they could recommend other tournaments or openings or, you know, whatever. And I I do think that's an overlooked aspect of chess. And I do know several chess players that, um, you know, would consider themselves chess martyrs and that they're chess purists and they only care about the game and they don't want these, you know, other considerations or even now, nowadays with chess streaming and chess content, and they, they don't want to put their themselves in that public facing role. But that's another form of chess networking, just, you know, showing, showing the chess public what you have to offer and uh, imparting your content in that way. But a big lesson that we can learn from the corporate world is that uh, yes, this networking, it's first of all, it is important, but it's there's also strategy to it. And I don't think that you can remove, you know, these networking aspects from the game, because like you said, they, they go hand in hand. Um, so I, I would say to chess players who consider themselves more purists and think that, oh, well, I just only need to focus on on the game and the theory. And that's all I need to play chess and chess is supposed to be meritocratic. Um, so it's, I shouldn't have to bother with all of these external factors. And I would 
say to them, consider these external factors as part of the meritocracy and just another part of the game that you have to master, just like mastering time management. That's a really good point. If you're not Magnus Carlsen or Fabiano Caruana, oftentimes, you know, having the right friend group might get you an invitation or other help you with your career outside just the pure play of the game, right? As so many of the top players give lessons or do commentary or do streams. There are so many different ways to be a success in chess now that are beyond just being number one player. Absolutely. And even if you look philosophically at the game, and even if you think, well, I'm, I only need to have myself to play chess, and it's only about me and my theory and studying, but that's um, not the case. Chess is not a solipsistic game because you're anytime you're playing a game, first of all, you're competing against someone directly over the board, but you're also competing against uh, the masses and all the rankings and all of the titles that you are setting your standards by um, are dictated by a broader social network. So um, you you can't just take the stand that, you know, it's just me and me alone, but you have to consider yourself as part of this community. That's a really interesting point. And I know you studied philosophy at Drexel University, which you in your book gave a lot of credit to for allowing you to pursue this flexible um, program that ended up allowing you to graduate undergrad in just two years. Uh, that's right. Philosophy was also a, a big part of my my upbringing. And I, I still see it through in terms of my outlook in, in chess and law and life. And I think it was in law school that you wrote a paper about the validity of copywriting chess moves. Uh, I did. I explored whether chess games could be copyrightable. And in fact, that was one of the first intellectual curiosities I had that led me to law school from from philosophy and from my path in chess, if you will. Uh, and just the bottom line to to those who are interested is that, and this is just my personal opinion and not a, a legal determination, but what I wrote in the paper uh, was that there, there is a minimal amount of creativity that has to go into copyrightability. So I determined that a chess game on its own is not copyrightable because a chess game on its own um, has algorithms that are too akin to mathematics or to equations that uh, are not subject to copyright. But if you have a compilation of games, uh, such as a chess book, then you could copyright that compilation. But a, a game on its own, uh, at least my conclusion was that um, you, you cannot uh, subject that to copyright. And of course, there are also practical uh, issues with whether you have joint authorship with uh, your opponents. So th there's a lot of difficulties in also executing that. That's a fascinating conclusion. And I, I kind of like what you came to, because that one thing that would be kind of upsetting, and I'm sure it's happened to some players in history, is if you're this great player and somebody just decides to take your top games and write a book about them before you got a chance to, that's kind of rude. And you're saying that maybe they would have a case if they didn't get your permission. Well, there are other legal regimes that that could run into, like right of publicity, which I find very fascinating, which is um, a right that you have over your own persona and your own likeness. But in terms of the games that they're using, um, you know, the the games are out there and uh, at least I determined they're not copyrightable. So if they want to compile those games and put them in the book, it seems like from at least a copyright standpoint that, you know, they can. There's the right of publicity question, which is whether they can use your name or likeness or if it's misconstrued as an endorsement and it could run into issues that way. Uh, but it, it's similar to biographies. And so you see these, you know, unauthorized biographies, but uh, people do that and yeah, they can write books. Yeah, I guess to me, like the difference there is that like they're using the the content from your games. Uh, but I don't know, because I also have a lot of respect for writers. And I know that, it, you know, as a, somebody who's written a lot about chess in the past from CLO to my books, I'm sure that a lot of times people aren't doing anything like that with malicious intent. They're just like, oh, there's not a book about this player. I should write one. But then you mentioned that that could potentially be different than just publishing one game. It kind of struck me. Yeah, there, there's a lot of considerations. And I do feel like chess is very unexplored in terms of the the legal regimes or the legal rights that players have. And there, there's a lot more there. Uh, and something like uh, St. Louis, where they organized the U.S. championships, was actually the first championship where at least I've experienced the player's contract. Uh, and even I, I remember going through that years ago. And yeah, not, not all tournament organizers are doing that. But even with the chess league, you know, I'm very careful about 
one of the requirements for joining. And if if anyone is interested, because I get this question all the time, you know, how do I get my team to join the league? So the first requirement is that you have to get internal approval from your own company uh, and clear that with compliance and with communication so that you can formulate a team and compete as a team. And um, it's not something that chess players are necessarily thinking about or even, you know, just employees. But um, yeah, we do require that type of approval and that you'll be okay with being mentioned in PR. And then there are other requirements that you have to have at least five players on your roster so that you can um, all be sure to field the team during the season. There's really a, a lot that goes into chess and lawn behind the scenes. And I feel like there's more that could be explored there. Yeah, it's really fascinating. For chess players who are trying to become, you know, more successful and are encountering more contracts. Obviously, if they reach a certain level, they're going to need to get their own lawyer, right? But if they they can't afford to get their own lawyer, is there anything that they should be like on the lookout for? Well, first of all, if you're at that level where you are competing in high stakes tournaments and you are making your primary living, you know, making six figures playing chess, you should have a, like a lawyer or someone, you know, review your contracts and your rights. I think it's it's very important, just like if you're a public personality or if you were a TV personality and you need to have an agent and they have their teams reviewing their contracts. So, yes, I do think it's very important. But I also think that on the other side, there's not that same level. So it might be a bit of a mismatch. Sometimes you do think you have a legal right to enforce or you can pick apart this term or argue about this term. But is it just going to cause more trouble than it's worth? Oh, you mean that? That fighting about this term that at the end of the day, it's just is it really that important? Because first of all, the probability is low. And then if you're going to burn bridges along the way, it might not even be worth it. You know, even if I see a term and I know it's not great and like, you know, I'd prefer to rewrite it, but is it really worth fighting about it? Yeah, because you have to calculate the odds that anything like that is actually going to happen. So you think that a chess player who's making, whether it's like a maybe from their income in chess or from events, who's making six figures really should have a lawyer. What Especially if you're doing appearances. So if, if it's not just about the games, mm-hmm. but if you are making appearance fees, if it's about you, your public persona, then yeah, you should definitely have someone look at that. Because if you make a speech or there are photographs going out, you know, who has the right to those photographs or to a copy of that speech or that likeness or, you know, are there ways to monetize that? So there, there's a lot of different considerations, especially now with streaming and content. Um, like you mentioned, there are so many more different ways that chess is evolving. There are so many more considerations. What kind of lawyer should a chess player have if they're super successful? Like, would that be, that's like a contract lawyer generally, right? Well, probably be an entertainment lawyer. Oh, okay. And people ask me, you know, what is entertainment law? And entertainment law is not really, it's not just one specific thing, but like you said, it involves contracts. IP is a big part of it. Uh, employment, uh, transactional. They just do a bit of everything. They're a bit more industry specific. Because you you don't want a, you know, like a corporate lawyer like me, because we handle corporations and, you know, our fees are very, very expensive. Uh, But someone from like a smaller firm or more of an individual lawyer who has individual clients and not corporate clients. Interesting. That's good advice, but not official legal advice, you guys. None of this is. (laughs) No, no, I'm not authorized to provide legal advice. I'm not engaged to (laughs) provide legal advice. I always have to be so careful, you know, it's kind of like I have these, what, what is like an opinion versus what is legal advice. But yeah, everything here is just an opinion. So don't, you know, but it is my professional advice from a chess player standpoint that it would be a good idea to get a lawyer if you're at that level. We are in a new year, 2020. So a lot of people are making some chess resolutions. Do you have any suggested chess resolutions for people? Oh, that's a good one. And also it's crazy that it's 2020. When you said it at the beginning, it's like, I can't believe it. It's been so long. Uh, so I don't know when this is going to air, but I'm preparing to play in um, one of my first big tournaments in the wild. I'm playing in an open tournament in Seville, Spain. And part of the reason I'm playing is because I, I did pretty well in the chess league, as you mentioned. So I thought, um, yeah, why not uh, just give it a, a try? I want to play outside the country and combine it with the vacation in a beautiful city like Seville. So in terms of resolutions that people can make for their own chess goal. So uh, I do keep going back to this concept about being mindful of goal setting and always thinking about about the next step. And um, it's a problem when you're setting resolutions. So that's a specific goal. But you can also have a goal of 
you know, just just being content and reflecting on what exactly do do I want out of this uh, and seeing at, at what point will you be truly happy? So I do I do feel like even before even before you make your goals or resolutions, just take a step back uh, and reflect on the level that you want to get at. But even more comprehensively, you know, what what will truly make you happy and what would truly make you happy in Jess? Uh, so right now, I feel like I'm just very underrated. And it's it's not that it'll make me happy to gain rating back, but it'll make me less unhappy because I, I feel like in my true strength and even historically, my rating has been higher. And I feel like I'm playing much better now than I ever have. Even though I haven't been competing in tournaments, I've still been studying. I've been reading a lot of chess literature, keeping up with big events here and there. And of course, playing, playing in the chess league, which um, I, I have to say that when I started the chess league, um, I thought that, oh, yeah, I could just drop in and play some games and it's not going to be a big deal. But then turns out that the competition is so strong. So this year alone, we had, I believe, four IMs in, in the chess league, uh, mostly on boards one and two, and then a couple of FMs and WIMs and strong expert players. So it became very competitive in the league. And uh, it keeps me sharp. Um, you're saying you're underrated. And I think what happens to a lot of people is you stop playing as much chess after you've had a few bad tournaments. So that can sometimes lead to like a deflated rating that you kind of stick with for a long time, which is pretty annoying. And it's funny because I had a previous uh, podcast guest, James Altucher, who's this business person, author, great guy. And you would love him. He he actually should stop by the corporate chess league sometime. Maybe I'll connect you guys. He told me that when he started to realize that he was like maybe going to be overrated because he was getting so busy and he was a 2200 player and he started losing to kids. Like when he got to 2203, he stopped playing because he's like, I don't want to go under 2200. And it was partly like a business decision because now like he says he's a master and if somebody looks it up. Like, it's true. It's right there. Oh, okay. That That's funny. But I can relate to that because the last big tournament I played in was the North American Open a couple years ago where I did pretty well. Um, was in the running for first, ended up in uh, second place in the under 2300 section, gained a lot of rating, won some money. It's like very successful tournament, more successful than I've had in a while before that. And then I, I didn't play after that because I think most chess players at that point might think, oh, let me keep the momentum going. I did well. Let me play in another tournament. But for me, it was like, okay, well, I'm going to just cut my losses because I still have the mindset of, well, over time I've been losing and losing. So I had one good result and let me just stop there and enjoy that and not have to worry about uh, losing or nullifying this win. And I think it's completely logical, especially for James, because, you know, unlike you, you already, already have all these accolades, you know, gold medal for the US. So like whether your rating is 2,400 or 2,300, like people don't really care that much. I mean, obviously you do, but I don't think it matters that much. Whereas for somebody where like the national master is their thing. Yeah, that is very delicate. But I do think that that is a slight inherent problem with the rating system, because with adult play and, you know, prestige being tied in with your rating and getting really busy, it can discourage active play. Whereas things like the corporate chess league or the pro chess league don't have that. So what is the solution? Right. That's a good point. And I know like some people outside of the league uh, ask, oh, are you going to rate the games? And no, because that would actually exclude a lot of people. And the big reason that they come and play is because it's not rated. So there's no pressure. There's also no no cash prizes. So a lot of people ask, you know, so why do they play? What's motivating them? Well, it's it's a, the love of the game, uh, which I also find just very pure. There's no big cash prizes on the line, no rankings. People just love to play. And yes, there's some prestige and some ego with getting your team to win. But people just they just really love coming out and playing. Uh, I do think it's initiatives like this. You need to have, you know, your own subset or sphere of play and get the people to come out and focus their time in, in this aspect. And then if they feel like branching out and going back into the, the ratings and the rankings, then they can kind of like me. I mean, I spent most of my time playing in the league the last two years, but I feel like I'm ready to get back into a competitive tournament. Yeah. And maybe there's some way where you, if you look up a player, there could be more emphasis on the highest title that they ever gained and a little bit less emphasis on their current rating. Because like in bridge, it's always like, what's the highest title you ever earned? In poker, it's like, how much money have you won in your lifetime? Whereas in chess, the first number that pops out at you is, what are you rated now? I hate to hear these stories about people like, and myself too, like, 
a little bit discouraged from playing in, you know, rated weekend tournaments, not only because of the time commitment, but also because it just feels like as you shake off the rust, you're going to lose these rating points that are so integral to like your identity. And so I think that maybe that's something that could be thought about a little bit more, especially with adults, because our K factor is a lot lower. Mm. Oh, so you're saying even within the existing rating system and within the title system. Yeah, I think the K factor is uh, is a big problem right now for the kids because they're already so strong and the chess landscape is so different, you know, even nowadays, and I'm saying nowadays as if I'm so old, but when I was coming up in chess, we didn't have all of these chess tutorials online and just, you know, open open access to games and playing uh just different types of players of all different strengths or Skype lessons with GMs, you know, you need to have like a, a GM coach in person to get access to all of this. And I never, never even had any of that. But now all the kids, it's just a click away. So I feel like there's more access to that type of information. Um, they're definitely more booked up. And I feel like they're already underrated. And I, even just recently, I've been playing kids that I feel like are on the rise. But, you know, I'm playing them when their rating is maybe 150 points lower than where it will be a few months from now. So I, I do think that there is something to that idea with adults. And, you know, if kids have a higher K factor, maybe with adults, if you haven't, if you could tie that to activity, if that if you haven't played in a while to just loosen the impact of your K factor, because it's kind of not fair that if I don't play for two years and I come back in one tournament and, you know, get crushed by these little kids that already have high K factors, then I end up losing a lot. And that that's a major deterrent. It, exactly like you were saying, you know, why would I do that and put myself through that, especially if I'm just trying to, you know, just have a good, good tournament, play chess. And if at the end I lose like 50 rating points off of that, then yeah, I'm not going to go back. And that's, that's already happening. So yeah, maybe something with the K factors. Maybe something with the titles, but I really don't think the title is that much of a deterrent because, you know, once you achieve it once, like even if your friend who achieved National Master, I feel like even if he dipped below, he could still, you know, say he was master level or master strength or it, that's just more in, in the way that you presented. But in terms of what happens at the actual tournament. Yeah, let's just reflect on these K factors in general. Interesting. Yeah, I think there's a lot to think about, but the membership numbers in U.S. chess are looking really good. But I just think for the continual growth of the game, it's 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 a tricky problem to solve. How to continue the rise of scholastic level players, which is going so fantastically. College chess is going great, while also trying to allow adults also to reap the benefits of the game and continue to enjoy it. It's, it, re- it requires a lot of thought, but I think it's worth it. And your initiative, I think, is spectacular in, you know, pointing out one way to maybe tackle it, um, have like segregated competitions that are about networking and fun, not just about, you know, winning as many games as possible. I appreciate that. And I do know that in speaking with players from the league who are in similar situations that I am, they would like to, you know, be more integrated and play in the regular chess tournaments. But the time, I'd say, is the biggest factor. So if you can play around with the the time schedule and the time control and also figure out, you know, what to do with the the rating so there's not as big of an impact, that would definitely help. So another lesson from the corporate world, just Thinking a bit differently is also on recruitment strategies and retention strategies and corporations. They focus a lot on recruitment, um, but there's also a second aspect of that that focuses on retention. So I feel like chess is doing amazingly with recruiting, you know, kids to playing with recruiting more girls to playing. But uh, I feel like there could be more focus on the retention once you actually get all of these people to play. How do you get them to stay in the game? And especially when they turn into adults who still want to play and who could actually give back to the game? How do you focus on on that aspect? Yeah. And I think you're right. Then it needs to be shorter and it also needs to have a potential benefit to your life outside chess. And like you're hitting both of those things, but we could spread that to more cities. I think that would be tremendously valuable. Um, St. Louis is also doing it. I think San Francisco might have something in the works. But, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and your city has a corporate chess league, let us know about it because we'd love to also hear about other efforts like this as, you know, the more cities that do it, I think the better. Um, But yeah, thanks so much, Alyssa, for joining us. And hopefully 
you know, there'll be more articles from you on Chess Life Online so that we can stay followed with all of your activities from organizing events to writing to to playing yourself. Oh, thank you so much. I look forward to writing more. You can follow Alyssa Melahina on Twitter at Alyssa underscore Melahina. Yes. And you also have a website. Uh, yes, that's AlyssaMelahina.com. And my Instagram is same as my Twitter. And of course, her book, Reality Check, you can find all sorts of links to that on her websites and pick that up as you'll get to know a lot more about her and her philosophies on life, her favorite players, Capablanca, and her favorite books. And speaking of which, New Year's resolution time, people have gift certificates to U.S. chess sales and they're stocking, um, looking to spend some money on chess books. You said you've been reading recently. What do you recommend? Uh, so a book that I'm in the middle of reading right now is recommended to me because I have a big problem with converting advantages. Also, one of the reasons why I've been, been playing as much, just I feel like every time I get a winning position, I just can't convert it. So I was recommended The Seven Deadly Chess Sins by another fellow philosopher, uh, Jonathan Rousen, GM. Uh, and he's written um, a lot of really good, insightful books about chess. So I feel like when I read his work, it really speaks to me and resonates to me. Uh, and I'm still halfway through, so I guess uh, I won't really see if, if it works for me or, or not, but I have been enjoying it. And what was one thing you picked up from it so far? You know, he really, um, the, the very first uh, sin that he goes over is uh, thinking in chess. And you wouldn't think that that's a sin, but he distills what it means to think. And most people conceive of, oh, when you're playing chess, most of what you're doing is thinking. But uh, his approach is that, well, that's not true because there's different uh, wavelengths that you're operating on. You could be calculating or you could be planning ahead. You could be counting material. And we put all of that into the same bucket as thinking. Uh, but once you distill that into its different elements, then you can actually fix your quote unquote chess thinking. Fascinating. I mean, I thought it was a tremendous book. I read it many years ago. You're kind of convincing me to reread it. Um, he actually also came out with a new book, which doesn't have chess itself in it, but talks about like the philosophy and impact of chess called Moves That Matter. Um, so, so great choice there. And you're in good company because Levan Aronian has also recommended that book on stream. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah. <laughs> but also check out, of course, Reality Check, as there's some chess in there as you go through some of your best games. And you also talk about the philosophy of chess. Yeah, there's a little bit of everything. There is a little bit of philosophy, a little bit of chess, a little bit of business, life lessons. You know, it, it's a book for everyone and no one, as I like to say. Wonderful. Well, thanks again, Alyssa Melahina. And um, thanks so much for coming to the studio in Philadelphia. If you like what we're doing at UX Chess to encourage women and girls to explore STEM fields, accentuate competence, and approach an even ratio with a focus on intersectionality, your donation to our US Chess Women programs is always appreciated and tax deductible. Don't forget to listen and subscribe to all US Chess podcasts from One Move at a Time, Cover Stories, and The Chess Underground. Till next time, may every night be ladies' night. Now according to Sockfish I got it all wrong After slightly advantage I had nothing But my dear Capablanco You tell me We learn more from our defeats Who needs victory? Thank you.